And uh, this morning, Mary said a lot of, uh, sort of pretty fundamental and important things in the Dharma talk. And after the talk, there were a number of questions and a lot of issues got raised. Uh, and I think they're still hanging in the air. And uh, I hope that in this afternoon and this evening and as we go forward into tomorrow, we'll be able to go into a lot more depth uh, than we were able to this morning on those issues. But one thing I think, uh, at least it seemed to me, was pretty, pretty clear uh, in what came up this morning is that um, in this retreat and in this work that we're presenting, uh, we're not talking about a problem and here's the solution. And then your job is to sort of apply the solution Problem solved. So naturally, you ask, you know, did I get the solution right? Is now is that it? Is it? Can you please make it clear? Or can I understand it better so that I can apply it and solve the problem? And, and naturally, this is how we would approach it because this is how we're all trained. The problem solution, and this is how we think. This is the whole way that we approach the world and that we live in the world. But. Uh, I think it, some of the Marys kept saying over and over this morning, well, actually, it's pretty difficult. You know? <laughs> I can't give you a, an exact solution to this. So what we're talking about is not problems and solutions. What we're talking about is seeing differently, S- seeing things differently, and experiencing things differently, which in a way means what we're talking about is being different people to some extent. You know, than we have been. And that's not something that you kind of get the idea and then you just do it. It's, it's a process and, and it takes time. I think when Mary said so many times it's difficult, she also could have said it takes time. And so we're hoping that, that this retreat and what we're presenting and the experience that we're going to have together is the beginning uh, or the continuation for many of us of, the, of that process. Which, which really is, what we're really talking about is, is a profound shift in viewpoint. And part of that path toward that profound shift in viewpoint is, for sure, I mean, it seems very counterintuitive, but its experience shows that it's true, that part of the path to that profound change of viewpoint is be still to breathe, to be aware of the body as a basis for being able to be aware of the thoughts and the feelings in a different way. And part of the process, too, is reflecting you know, on our experience on the basis of that awareness that we develop on our meditation cushions, being able to experiment with our ways of speaking and being And also part of it is an ongoing conversation that we have with friends, fellow practitioners who are also trying to work out this new way of seeing and new way of being in the world, in particular in this profession. And that's what we've been doing in our working group, and that's what we want to share with you and actually experience that um, in this retreat and experience the first 
such conversation uh, in, in a minute. So a lot, a lot of what was behind, uh, I, I heard anyway, a lot of what was behind some of the things that were arising in the questions this morning uh, was this uh, issue that we raised with you when we sent you uh, the letter uh, confirming your coming to the retreat, which is uh, the question of how we deal with confrontational situations, oppositional situations, which are so commonplace in the world in general and, and particularly in, in this profession. Uh, I have a, an ongoing uh, Dharma seminar that I do, and we're, we're actually uh, this month considering the question of anger. And one person in the seminar who works in the financial uh, world, he's an uh, uh, investment banker. And he said, well, in the financial world, and I think this could be said also in the world of law, uh, confrontational speech, aggressive speech, uh, angry or nasty speech is commonplace. It's normal. It's not like special. It's just normal. It's the way we, that's the way we relate to one another. And, and, and people in that profession just accept that as, as normal. At least in, in our office, he said, that's the way it was. That's the way we dealt with one another. And, you know, we got over it and we would go on to, to another day. But that was our mode. And I said to him, well, how, how was that for you? He said, well, you know, for many years it was very normal and I just took it in stride. But the truth of the matter is that in order to do that, I had to take a part of my soul or a part of my heart and sort of put it on the shelf and not let that be part of who I was. That's the only way that I could go on that way. Mary said this morning, and I, this is probably not an exact quote, but something like, if you make someone into an, an other, uh, it costs your heart. It wounds your heart. And I think that's what my friend was saying. Yeah, in order not to be, to be aware of that woundedness, I just put that part of myself away. And I think everybody else did too. And we went on that way for, for some years. So what we want to do this afternoon is begin to take that part of our heart, if it's been on the shelf, to take it off the shelf. And if it hasn't been on the shelf, to allow ourselves to, to look at it uh, and discuss it and explore it together a little more, a little more closely. Uh, here's what everybody, I think everybody here received this, the letter that said, over the next few weeks, before the retreat, up to the retreat, please pay attention to how you feel about and handle confrontational situations in the context of your legal work. Pay attention to how you feel about and how you handle confrontational situations in the context of your legal work. Go as deep as you can with this reflection. What are your main strategies for coping with such situations? And that is, uh, whether you actually did spend the last few weeks looking at this, I'm sure this is something you're not unaware of, and that's something that everybody here can speak to. And that's what we want to get into this afternoon. And I would add to this, what are your feelings about confrontational situations? Um, what are your strategies for coping with them? What do you actually do? And how does it work for you? And I would add to that, it doesn't say that here, but I would add to that. And what does it cost you? What, what, what is the cost to you of your 
if there is one, of your strategies of coping with confrontational situations? And if, and if the answer to, to the question is, I don't cope with those situations very well and it's, it's driving me nuts, then talk about that. So we want to actually be honest with each other and, and go into the, this question with a double uh, purpose. First of all, in the hope that uh, in what we say in this atmosphere, uh, which is pervaded by uh, mindfulness, and, and I hope uh, honesty and permissiveness for all of us to be who we actually are, not who we are supposed to be or who we're sort of professionally sculpted to be, but who, but who we actually are. In that atmosphere, maybe we can all find something out about ourselves in what we say that we never saw before. And also, in listening to one another, I think there'll be a lot of learning. So, that's our task for the, first, uh, for, for the rest of this uh, afternoon session. Okay, now, we have to be uh, very clever and alert. Because, <laughs> what I want to do now is I want to uh, divide us into 14 groups. First. No, I want to do the groups first. Uh, no, no. Uh, so, this, uh, we need this to be uh, smooth and quick. So, because what, what I want to do is get everybody uh, in your group. There'll be 14 groups. Everybody, get in, everybody in your group, bring your cushions and sit together in the group. And then when everybody's situated and calm down and we're all where we're supposed to be. I want to talk a little bit about the ground rules and the structure of these conversations because these are they're very particular uh, rules for these conversations that we found will yield really the best results. So it's very specific and particular. And I, but before, I don't want to go into that until everybody's where they're supposed to be. Okay, so you've got to pay attention. Okay. Uh, so we're going to have 14 groups. Eight of them are going to be on the sort of the periphery of the room, and six of them are going to be sort of in, inside the room a little further. Yeah? How many are supposed to be in each group? About five. So now, uh, we're going to use these groups throughout the weekend, so please remember what group you're in. <laughs> they have numbers. You're in group one or two or whatever it is. So please remember that. And also, for tomorrow when we do this same process, we won't have to go... Yeah, this will be posted. We won't have to go through all this again. The group has been meeting, having the kind of conversations that um, we've, you've just all been having. Um, Norman's rules. Uh, and um, trying to find a way to be... Uh, have these conversations in a way where we, f- we discover more about who we are and particularly what that means for us as lawyers. And, and so uh, the reason we do these retreats, or a reason, a big reason, is because we want to have that be a wider conversation. Um, so you've already started the conversation, and we're now trying to find a, the meeting point between the conversations we've been having together and conversations you've been having outside of here in your lives and also the conversations now we've just begun. 
So the goal now is for the next um, 45 minutes or so um, to see if we can continue the intimacy of the conversations that uh, we've just been having. And um, Norman's rules are still in effect. (laughs) So um, who wants to uh, just begin to continue? Why don't you just say your name so that we can... Allison. Oh, a lot of the time is that I can have conflict with somebody who also practices mindfulness or has some sort of yoga practice. And there's sort of unspoken ground rules in terms of being, even in anger, being kind and generous and and having compassion for both of the people engaged in the process. But when I'm at work, there's... It's unilateral. You know, my intention to to use compassion even in a conflict-oriented situation is not generally reciprocated. And I think, for me, that's been the hardest part about, um, over the last couple years at least, the hardest part of, of dealing with conflict in my professional life is... Um, just feeling ground down a lot of the time and having my intentions and my mindfulness be ground down in a system where those considerations of (coughs) listening and compassion and mindfulness are not part of it at all. And in fact, most people laugh at it, you know? So, I don't know. It's just an ongoing dialogue, and I, I just wondered if anybody else had that experience or thought about those things. I think it ranges in in people's reactions and responses and and some people even without the study of mindfulness are kind people, you know. But I think that um I struggle with it's more that I struggle with um coming up against people all the time who and this is in my personal life as well, but mostly I notice it in my professional life that people I come across who don't have those considerations in mind and whether it's ridicule or anger or more of the same or whatever, um, it's almost like I feel hopeless, like it's never going to change enough um, that any kind of um, change can be made in the system itself and how the justice system operates. Yeah, and then I have to, you know, turn my mindfulness practice back on myself and that frustration and hopelessness, and it seems like an endless cycle, (laughs) you know, instead of moving, I don't want to say moving forward, but instead of getting richer and larger and more open, like my practice is all about how to deal with that conflict, all about how to withstand that constant barrage of 
um, undermining and anger and whatever, you know? And, and it just becomes like this cycle. And I just get exhausted. Hi, my name's Kathleen. I don't have an answer, but I said the exact same thing in our group. Where, And I've, I brought up that um, one of my tools, I'm lucky in that I um, do transactional work, so I don't have to go mano at mano in litigation every day. Um, the, you know, when I do a good job, um, both parties are happy, and we don't have to talk to each other again until, you know, the next deal. Um, but... What I bring, what I brought to the group, and how, um, for me, I have a, a set point in in my life. It's just part of my personality. My set point is that I'm a, I'm quite an impatient, um, um, assertive person, and I am feel very blessed that I found Buddhism because it helps me. Um, it helps me take one step back and be more spacious when I would tend to automatically react to something, someone else's anger or my own anger coming up. And I actually have focused the last few years on cultivating a metta practice, and that helps me greatly um, on a daily basis, both professionally and personally. But I have the exact same frustration, and I said it in the group, where, okay, so I, I go to these retreats, and I talk to the teachers, and I talk, you don't talk to the yogis in the retreats, so you, you, know, you talk to the teachers, and, and my question is always, which has never been answered, and maybe it's because there is no answer, um, how come, you know, the more that I am trying to be kind and loving and an open heart to other people, you know, sometimes it works, maybe 3 or 4% of the time I get... Um, someone else to meet me in that place, but most of the time in the world in general, and especially in my profession, as you said, they, you get, you feel ground down and you have to, <clears throat> excuse me, you have to, the only well that I find to keep myself going is the metta practice, but you really do, you feel like a hamster. I mean, you're sitting there like, may I be kind, may I not suffer, may I be happy, and <laughs> you do, and I, I don't know what the answer is, but I do understand what you're saying. But one of the things that touches me from what you both said is in the face of all this, there's still this motivation to persist. Other people. Yeah, I, I relate. <laughs> and... Um, I used to have that issue a lot when I started meditating. Like I would say, you know, I'm such a nice person. If I go out in that world and I just be as nice as I want to be, like what's going to happen to me? Um, and I still think it takes a lot of trust. And it's still something I struggle with. But I think it's a really worthy goal. And I think in the striving, there's a lot to be learned. One just little vignette I shared, and I'm not always this good about in getting that my practice actually relates to my, my working life as well as the rest of my life. But I was working, doing a deposition with a particularly, really, really difficult lawyer. I mean, usually I, I do actually feel like kind of my reasonableness will take down the intensity of the, the anim, any animosity that's there. But I just couldn't get this lawyer to stop me. He was being extremely, extremely disrespectful of my client. And so I started saying, and I was so angry, and I started saying meta across the table. You know, I was right across from him. 
And I was thinking to myself, that must really suck, you know? Like, <laughs> he's so angry. That must feel really awful. You're like, what a pain in the ass to be that angry all the time. And I just was saying, you know, may you be happy. May... And so, and of course, D- Doug's behavior didn't change at all. But then he went out of the room and, and we were kind of laughing about the conflict. There was me and my cl- and well, my client for that day, and then the court reporter, and then I think it was the company's counsel. It was a big, big company. And so I told them what I was doing. I said, you know, we were, we were sort of laughing about the intensity. I said, yeah, at one point I just started saying, you know, meta meditation, you know, may you be happy. And they started to laugh, and it was kind of, in a way, like the joke was on him. And it, in a way, then later I felt bad, like maybe I shouldn't have said anything because it wasn't to make him be small, but it was like an, this incredibly empowering thing. Like, even his, even the attorney on the other side who was going right along with him, rolling her eyes and... You know, all that stuff was, they were laughing and realizing that it was sort of ridiculous, all that conflict. So every once in a while, I feel like there's a breakthrough. So, so what's your name? Diana. So, so Diana, it sounds like you were able to actually, in the face of all that, find some source of compassion in yourself that actually felt pretty genuine. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Hi, I'm Rochelle. Um, I wanted to say, is this on? Okay, I want to say two things, and one is I grew up in a home with a lot of conflict, so I don't really like conflict, and I try to either push it away or run away from it or whatever, and I think what my practice has helped me with is just like letting thoughts be okay, letting the conflict be present, and trusting that it will change and move to just like, you know, the good moments in negotiation or whatever, and that's really helped me a lot because my tendency has been, and I shared this in the group, to push through the conflict, and that ends up often shutting people off. And people may go along and agree with the point, but they really haven't been able to say what they needed to say, and so there's a dis- dis-ease there. And so I think that's where my practice has really helped me a lot. And I'm, I'm really clear there's nothing I can do to change other people. You know, I'm, It's really about what am I going to bring to the conflict and what am I going to do with myself in the conflict. And so I think, I've, I think the other thing I want to say is I've kind of stopped judging any particular outcome of my behavior other than can I sleep at night and can I look in the mirror? And I think that's what, what's helped because when I have a, the expectation that, okay, I'm going to be nice, so you're going to be nice, it's like a boomerang. You know, it doesn't really work that way. So, you know, I'm going to be nice and kind because those are my values and that's what I want to bring here. Seems to be, that seems to be satisfying for me. I mean, I still get triggered by all that, but I seem to let go of the judging that other people are going to act in any certain way or this is going to take less time or I'm going to feel better at the end or something like that, so... you can't make others change and that that's actually settled here. Other- yeah, let me just jump in and make, make a comment that, uh, and I'm checking this out, I want to see, because this, this to me seems like a really important point, this whole conversation. Uh, and, and so what I, uh, it sounds like uh, you're saying that because, and I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but be, because you're not expecting the other people to change, and you're not paying it, you know, uh, it's less grinding down to you than it is to the other people who said, this is really grinding me down. So is that right? And is it, is it, is it, is it possible that the lesson here is the expectation is grinding you down rather than the behavior of the other people, or that's a contributing factor? In other words, 
if you didn't expect anything from those other people who were being aggressive and you focused on your own behavior, maybe the, the lack of that expectation would make you feel less ground down. Maybe. I don't know. I mean... That's what's grinding you down. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess two things come up. One is is sort of seconding what was just said about, I always like Shanti Davis' comment, you know, that we should be thankful for those that bring up our own difficulties because they give us occasions to practice. So that when I deal with jerks, you know, they're the jerk, not me, and I get a chance to deal with whatever arises for me when I deal with a jerk. Um, but the other thing I think that practice... I find out of practice is I'm not changing the people on the other side of the table, but people that work on my side of the table, younger lawyers I work with, it does give me an opportunity to talk to them about not getting so attached to their anger, not getting so attached, letting somebody else trigger their buttons all the time. You know, and I can constantly be talking to them about, you know, you don't have to respond to that person that way. You can just, they're not going to change, but you can change. And you don't have to lie awake at night and run around the office cursing and screaming about them. So I think there's a way in which my practice is helping me with lawyers that I work with, younger lawyers. It probably isn't helping anybody on the other side of the table, but you know, you can't fix the whole world. It's helping me a lot. Thank you for your comment. The, the first thing that triggered in my mind, because I mentor younger attorneys also in my practice, but lately I have found that I, passion and attachment are almost, how do you keep them <laughs> in check? In other words, how can you have that passion for something but yet not be attached? And that's, that's where there's a great conflict internally at the moment uh, for me. What's your name? Steve, sorry. Can you just say a little bit more about what that goes on inside you in terms of dealing with that uh, tension? I, I, understand I understand attachment and not getting... Intellectually, I understand it. I mean, I understand that it's my client's problem, uh, you know, or and it's the other person's problem, and I'm there just to try to assist moving things along. But there gets to be a, a passion to 
let's say, promote a point or in, in some cases to make law or to get a judge to see your point of view and separating that passion of, of that, that advocacy that we, 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 we all do from the attachment is not clear in my it, it's not clear in my mind and that's probably more than I should um it's it's it, I, I apologize it's 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 hard to express it's 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 work it's putting an argument together in an area of, let's say, making some new law or, or making sure that certain interpretations of a very ambiguous law are, are made get to be the standard. And so that's... Uh, I, I'm not sure that that explains what's going on here. Maybe it's, maybe it's all... Maybe as I'm seeing it now, it's that horrible ego. <laughs> Maybe, maybe the self-respect and um, wanting to be right, uh, wanting to wanting to to have some degree of legacy, perhaps. I, I, I'm not. I think that may be stretching too far, but that's thoughts that come up. I just I I don't I think I'm picking up on something Gary's hearing in you I'm not sure but at any rate I just I want to tell you that what's resonating for me in hearing you is a kind of a self-deprecation that's maybe not necessary now, that there there can be joy in the practice of law and joy in the creativity that it sounds like is involved in you know that kind of thing making new law or arguing for a particular interpretation that you think will pin down something in a way that you think is useful. And I think that it, it, it's got to be okay to find joy in the practice and to take pleasure in our accomplishments. And it's true that it isn't always easy to see where, the, you know, where that shades over into attachment. But it isn't just attachment. Does that respond to you at all? Cycling back to the comment about who you can change, which is the basic rule it takes, took me forever to even understand it and now how to actually implement it is the next trick. But I find, in going to the expectations, you know, there's a saying about expectations that I take some solace in, which they're resentments waiting to ambush you. And when I find myself hung up on expectations, that's generally what happens. But in the negotiation standard and stuff, what I've done, and you can say it's kind of cute and disingenuous, but I try to, I don't intend it to be that way. When things are getting testy and nasty, as you talked about, Allison, and you're being ground down, I will say there must be something about what I'm doing here today that's causing you to come after me and treat me this way. What can I change so that doesn't happen to happen? And that, you know, I mean, that's, 
it's, a, it's kind of disarming and, and it sets the people back a little bit, but it is really the issue from my perspective because that's all I can do. And if I can say to the person, what am I doing that makes you be such an asshole? <laughs> um, you know, they can do what they want with that, but I've at least owned my part of the, of the process. And, you know, yeah, but, you know, getting ground down, there's opportunities for that everywhere, not just in the law. Yes. So you experienced that. You can identify. Sure. I mean, through the processes. The other day I had a client who wanted me to issue an opinion. I said, I need you to give me these resolutions. And he said, well, I'm going to do X. I'll have my executive committee do it. And I said, that isn't going to work. I need the board to pass it. And he said, oh, well, we have it in the bylaws. that the executive committee can do it. Well, it isn't in the bylaws. <laughs> and what's in the bylaws is that they can have a resolution that the executive committee can do it. I said, show me the resolution. He said, well, we've had it. And I said, good, then show it to me. Well, he, couldn't, he didn't have it. Couldn't find it. He was really pissed. Really, really pissed. Probably at me for bringing it up, him for not being able to put his hands on it. But he went through the process, and in the midst of the thing, I said, you know, I know I'm really making you angry, and I, can, and I know this is not making you happy. And I can only tell you that I'm only doing it because it's crucial to this whole process from my perspective, and I'm sorry to cause you that much trouble. And he just said, thank you very much. Now, before I'd started this practice, I think my default would have been, silly SOB doesn't have his records together, serves him right. <laughs> I said that earlier that you know, there's that saying that an old, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I'm hoping that old dogs can learn new tricks. Oh, I just want to bring it back, Jamie. Um, I just want to bring it back around to what, is it Michael said about um, working with younger attorneys, and that made me think of working with my students and how redeeming that is for me, and for me, what popped into my mind was the importance of Sangha, having a community, which is part of the reason why I dragged myself 3,000 miles to come to these things. Um, but, I mean, for me, the ability to reach out to a larger community and get some new perspective, whether it's from my students or my coworkers or y'all, sometimes is what keeps me, redeems me from that ground-down feeling. You know, I get to the point where I, you know, I'm in a pretty good work situation, but there's some things about it that are so frustrating, and sometimes I feel like my head's going to pop. And so often it's the community that I am so fortunate to be a part of that, you know, I'm able to reach out and have somebody just bring me a little bit different perspective. And they don't necessarily have to be a mindfulness um, practitioner or a yoga practitioner. Um, you know, sometimes my students have incredible wisdom, even when they're just, you know, babies straight through from undergraduate. So I just want to say partly thank you to y'all for, for being community for me. My name's Anthony, and for me, the opposing counsel really is never the problem. I have faith in 
the judge, faith in the evidence code, and feel good about that. For me as a family law attorney, it's the clients that just ground me down. The, the clients that want an ex parte order changing custody because dad feeds the kids macaroni and cheese. I, I mean, things like that, that just... <sighs> I hear, I hear attorneys talk about transactional law, and wow, that sounds amazing. Uh, <laughs> sign me up. And, and, oh, shit. I, I mean, that, that, that's what happens. Um, I, I had a case where, where a husband and wife divorced. He had an affair. Um, he wanted 50% custody. He had 47, and it made sense to give him that extra little 3%. And we had to go to trial on it, it, it things like that. And if I don't fight my, for my client, I'm a wimp. Uh, and so that, Correct. And it's like, just settle it. Who cares if he gets an extra two hours every other weekend? And for her, it was huge. It was her whole life, her meaning of being for, for, for that moment. And we lost, and rightfully so, looking back on it. And I don't think she's ever forgiven me for that. So... I'm Sherry. I think it's what you were talking about, the idea of having a minority value system in the middle of a majority adversarial value system is, is what's difficult. I'm, not, I'm from Seattle, and I don't know that there's a community up there. If there is, I need to find it. But um, I know there's beginnings of little things that are happening up that way. And I remember a couple years ago, there was a, a CLE that was put on called Laws a Healing Profession, and I mean, everybody around me was laughing at it and going, <laughs> that must be an oxymoron or that's going to be a short CLE, you know, or, you know, or just, just the whole idea that, um, that there could be a different way. And I, there's now, there is locally now a beginning of a birthing of a very strong collaborative law movement, especially in family law. And I don't know how, if that's affecting people here and, I do public defense, so it doesn't really uh, affect me necessarily. But I think again, it's that idea of how do you how do you maintain um, a minority value system in this zealous advocacy mindset, adversarial mindset, where you just you're getting dissed, you know, all the time. And what's the impact of that on you? Um. I think it's, well, in our group, we were talking about that a little bit because a, a number of us had the same experience, and we were sort of coming to this a relatively same conclusion, and I'll just use my words for it, that you somehow have to maintain your own internal gyroscope in the face of all this other stuff. But I think the idea of having a community would be really valuable. Uh, or maybe just, maybe it's a hundred monkey, hundredth monkey thing, critical mass kind of thing, but maybe, you know, it just takes enough numbers to begin to fit that over where, it, where it's not going to be an oxymoron or not going to get laughed at, um, that it is considered a viable way of being in the world. So you're drawing on that hope for you and you're 
So is he. Uh, <laughs> I noticed. Well, that's a lot of pressure. Um, Mike and I had a, an exchange that he actually didn't know about, which is he said he had a daughter who was anticipating going to law school and wasn't sure. My daughter got accepted to law school and chose to take another degree in uh, teaching high school social studies, and I was so greatly relieved at her choice. And, but, and, I, and, I, and I, I look back on that and what's happened in the last three or four years, and, and, and I, I wish I didn't feel relieved by that choice. I wish that we could provide some of the experience and knowledge that we have in a law school setting so that you could actually carry into your first day of practice an awareness that has only come to me. I've been practicing 32 years, probably in the last two years I've I, I've come to a couple of conclusions, which I didn't articulate very well previously, but let me see if I can do it now. I, I represent developers who build things, which means that I'm not as much a lawyer as I am a, a, a change agent. What I do is I make things change. Um, but if you look at the law practice, all of us are involved in a transaction that is a change as if it were in isolation of the rest of the universe. So when you think about, a, you know, my analogy would be if the world were a ball of string, each of us is screwing around with about an inch of the volume of the string that constitutes the world, and we're thinking it's the most important thing in the world. When, when, I, when I'm building buildings or, or getting buildings approved, I often deal with neighborhood groups that are very upset about the change and when I solved the articulated problem, I learned that nothing has changed in their anxiety because they defaulted to what they thought the problem was, but it was, in fact, deeper. And I think that what I've, I've managed to do in the last couple of years, and it's really been informed by my work in the hospice, um, because that gives you such a different framework of looking at what you do in life, that, that I've come to the conclusion that, that, that really people don't intend to hurt each other. But they don't know what they're doing. They don't have enough awareness of where they are in the moment. to, And, and that's where the, the confrontation comes from. And, and the, the check that I've attempted to apply is to articulate in the circumstance, which will be very different from time to time, that we're in something that's part of something much bigger that's changing, and, and we just have to be aware of how small a piece we have, so let's not put too much energy in it. Second part is to ask the intention, because when you ask the other party their intention in their actions, they're often at a loss to identify what the, the purpose for the outburst or the challenge or the, the action is. And you have to ask it, in a, in, a, in a polite way or an inquiring way. We were talking about whether Socratic method is always hostile, and I don't think it has to be at all. But the question of what person's intentions are is so fundamental because I think when the, if you can get into that conversation, you're never going to find anyone who either doesn't see the error of their ways 
and they'll see when their intention is wrong. They'll, they'll start, they may not admit it, but they start to modulate their behavior immediately. Or they, or they find that their true intention is, is being articulated um, over the wrong issue. And sometimes you get to move just this huge distance to the right place that you were meant to be and having the communication in the first instance. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens so much more now. And I, I cheat like, like uh, Richard does to the extent that I often talk about hospice practice as a way of taking the communication down to something that's so fundamental. Um, when you talk about dying, things, other things get really much smaller, that l- little inch of string in the universe that we're playing with. And taking that pressure off allows people to make the inquiry they otherwise couldn't make. And I, I'm sorry if this has not been well organized, but it's probably the first time I ever said it. Um, but but it, there is some magic in there. And with that magic, I find that I can get up in the morning and come back and wish that my daughter could be a lawyer with a teacher who could help her get there. Well, what I'm hearing and what I've experienced is I think there's no way to generalize the problem because different practices, transactional practice, people are saying, well, I'm in a transactional practice and I don't really have to deal that much with that because it's not a, really as much of an adversarial process. Yeah, I'm in the criminal system and that's a, almost a purely adversarial process. And the idea of going into that saying I'm going to be gentle and kind with a prosecutor who's trying to nail your client's ass to the wall, you know, is not serving my client. And that's the, you know, that's the conflict I see in trying to apply, you know, goodness and mindfulness and, and, and all that, which I'd like to do. Steve, Stephen, uh, I'd like to do. But if I go in and do that and say, well, you know, I'm going to be nice and gentle and kind, and the other person saying, you know, I want to grab as much of your client as I can and lock him up, it's not going to work for my client. So, so, what, so what is it that Well, what I have to do now is I, I have to be more adversarial. I have to be more confrontational to, to respond to, to, to theirs. You know, I, I, I used to do some domestic work, but I got out of it because I couldn't stand exactly what um, Anthony was talking about. People fighting over, you know, macaroni and cheese or, you know, Saying, you know, I don't want that SOB's girlfriend around my kids or, you know, and, or I don't want, you know, to pay her a dime or whatever. And I'd say, well, that's your kid. You know, you're going to be dealing with him for the next 20, 18 years. Well, it, it's, it's very difficult. I try to, you know, I try to approach it in a rational, reasonable manner. And I, of course, think that my approach is. And in, 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 in what I do, it's not always right and wrong. I mean, you know, often my clients are, you know, once in a while, they're guilty. You know? <laughs> and I just have to accept that. But, but, you know, so it becomes, 
you know, as much an issue, and, and I tell them that for me, it's not so much whether you did it or didn't. They, you know, they've got your on videotape and 16 priests that witnessed it, you know, but is what the appropriate punishment would be, you know, and, and when you go in and, and you're trying to say, look, this person, you know, has no prior history, he's got a family, you know, it's kind of a situational thing and shouldn't go to prison for 27 years, you know, and they're saying, nope, this is the crime he committed, this is what, you know, the law says we can punish him with. You know, it gets very, very frustrating. And you tend to get more, I guess, hostile <laughs> as, as negotiations proceed and, and, and you get up against someone who has the power because, of course, the prosecutor has the power. Simply say, you know, this is it. Take it or leave it. Um, and, you know, sometimes you don't have a lot of – so it gets very frustrating. So the, the sure. And you, as much as you want to be – you know, I've dealt with DAs who, who put on this, oh, you know, I'm just going to be a nice guy. They don't do anything. They just act like they're, you know, they, they say, aren't you going to say good morning before you ask me why I want to send your client to prison for 35 years? You know, as if, you know, that would make a difference, you know, but it shows their, quote, humanity, I suppose. But it's not. It's just a, it's, so it's very frustrating. It's very stressful. Um, and it's very difficult. And I, you know, I'd like to find a place where I can communicate that kind of attitude towards the other side so that they would like say well maybe i should look at this a little differently maybe not everybody who commits this offense belongs in prison for 30 years or or whatever maybe i should take a look at it from a different perspective and that's that's my goal is to try to get them to see it you know um, in a way that they can appreciate it uh, and understand it rather than take the adversarial you know posture that i'm the prosecutor this is what i do I'm trying not to, but it's it's not easy. I just want to describe what I what I was feeling the other day. I had a five day trial on a divorce, <clears throat> and uh, I was sharing this earlier uh, before we started this the uh, the retreat, and this couple were going to trial on everything that you could possibly think. And the attorney on the other side was so obnoxious. And when I, just before I went to trial, preparing for trial, I couldn't sleep for about two days. Um, I was, every time I thought about this attorney, I felt like not in my stomach. I was sweating. I mean, it was just horrible. It was horrible the way I was feeling. Petrified. I was petrified. And then when I got there, I wasn't, neither I or my client were the um, judge's favorite party, to say the least. And as the trial started, my client was doing so bad. He wasn't even listening to me. He wasn't even answering to my questions. Uh, we were just going down, down. I mean, the more he opened his mouth, the worse he did. There was nothing I, I can do to stop him from just saying things that were stupid. It, I think on a second day, when I got there in the afternoon after lunch, <laughs> I finally realized I was so scared. I almost, it was like if I step out of myself and I could see my fear. Like I, I could almost touch my fear, how afraid I was. I said, my God, I have never felt this scared in my life. 
And then I said, you know what? There's really, I can't do any worse than what he's doing to himself. <laughs> you know, it's like there's nothing I can do to make him lose. Or, or, and, and, and that's the moment that, of revelation for me. Because I finally step out of that fear. And it was like if fear was sitting right there. And, I'm, and, I, and I cross my legs and I look at the other attorney. And I said, you know, he's not such a big jerk anyway. My guy is so bad. <laughs> Why am I scared? So you, you were by <laughs> <laughs> and, and I started saying, just pay attention. And I started writing his direct, it was his cross. I started writing it. And, the, and, and I did something good. Once I was able to do that, I was able to take the cross, the most damaging part, and try to, you know, bring him back a little bit when I went to, to do the recross or recross. And, but that was interesting because when I got back to my office, I usually get very tired after all of this. Like if I got to go to court, no matter what, what I go to court for, I mean, if it's a confrontation, I am exhausted, physically exhausted. And if I can take off the next day, I'll sleep. That's how much it takes out of me. So and that, that, uh, that night when I got to court, that Tuesday, preparing for Wednesday, it was like I was liberated. And yes, I mean, the, the trial went on and on and on. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't like that. I don't like to feel all of that. I don't like to lose sleep. I don't like to be so scared. I don't know. I mean, I, w- I would like to be doing something else. <laughs> but... Um, I went to law school late in my life because I wanted to do something that I never wanted to retire from. You know, something that I really enjoyed. And uh, I don't know. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I don't know what's the answer. Uh, when I get a decent attorney on the other side, then I got I mean, I, when I get a decent attorney on the other side, I get an indecent client. So... But uh, I don't think that there's a way to not be confrontational. It's just about, can I not dehumanize this other attorney? Because I had, a, I had an, an order of protection in family court the other day, and the attorney for the wife happened to be a dear friend of mine. And I'm like, oh, my God, here we go. And we did a very decent job, and we were confrontational. You know, because she was saying what her client was alleging, and I was saying, that's not possible. He was at work. How could he do that when he was at work? And, you know, and it was like we were confrontational, but we were decent about it. But there's something about other attorneys that they are confrontational and they're nasty. And that's what you want yeah. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.